our public reading of today's scripture. If you all stand with me. And then we have uh, our trusty Chris, who will be doing the responsive part of it. We're reading uh, 20, chapter 27, verses 27 through 44. This is it. After this chapter, we only have one chapter left of the book of Acts, which we've been doing for pretty much the last two years. So here we go. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to, so to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front, of, in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow uh, stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any, any of them from swimming and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. All together now? The, the rest, rest were to get, get there on plank or on pieces other pieces of the, the ship. ship. In, In this way, way everyone, everyone reached land, land safely. safely. Uh, dear Precious Father, we thank you, Lord, for gathering us here on this Sunday. Uh, as we are um, embarking on the new year and with the continuation of the coronavirus pandemic and also with the uh, change in the presidency, with the inauguration that has passed, uh, there are a lot of changes that we look forward to. Uh, we, we predict that it will be a good year because of your presence. We uh, thank you for... Uh, your mercy in keeping us in your protection and guarding us. And uh, as we look to you for a spiritual revival, we ask that the Sunday worship would be seen as the platform through which you will uh, accomplish this. So we ask that your preacher would today speak your truth uh, with relevance and conviction, and that each of the hearers would be able to have a resounding, echoing amen in their hearts. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing before you. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. 
Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a pleasure to be able to share the message with you again today. Every Sunday is such a privilege for me. Uh, last Sunday, we read from ch- uh, chapter 27, the first part, where, where we get the, to the part where, uh, where Paul and the other prisoners, uh, they were traveling from, from Italy, uh, from, from Myra in Lycia to Italy. They took a boat, and then they were caught in a, in a major storm. It even had a name of its own. It was called the Northeaster. And the turbulence and the violent waves were threatening to capsize, if not to smash the hull of the ship altogether. And through the unforeseen uh, storms in life, we're able to uh, draw a big lesson that we're not our own. We may live our lives, especially young people, we may live our lives with, the, with this kind of a sense of freedom because of your youth, but later on in life, you know, when you have gone through some some events, some crises that were out of your control, you realize that we're not our own. And we're shown by how Paul was able to respond during the crisis. What matters does not begin with our identity as in who we are, but with whose we are, to whom we belong. Paul stated that he had a vision from an angel of God to whom he belongs, this angel has granted the lives of everyone on the ship of his care. So much like Paul, we too belong to God. And that is the first order of identity from which everything else will stem. So the who we are individually takes on orientation after we have settled this matter of whose we are. Um, you might want to keep that in your heart, you know. Who, to we, to who, who do we belong to? And lastly, we saw that we serve God just like Paul did. If we do serve like Paul did, it is because we belong to him. And it's a point that I did not raise last Sunday. You could say that conversely, if we are not serving God, we, we have to ask ourselves, who do we belong to? If we're not serving God, we have to ask, do we really belong to God? Do we belong to him or not? Are you just simply free agents gallivanting on your own way? If that's the case, that person ought to seriously ask if that person is truly surrendered to Jesus or if we are still insisting on going our own way. I can only pray that none of us are sifted out that way because when we do abide in the body, it is for Him and for each other. We, stu- we stay stuck to the branches. Uh, we, st- we are the branches, right? We, stu- we stay stuck to the vine because, because we want to honor God and for the sake of one another. Now, the, the story st- uh, continues today. After 14 days have passed since the onset of the devastating storm, uh, when the wind keeps beating a ship off course, it drifts quite a bit. So we have a continual continuation of the northwest, northeastern wind that's pushing the, the ship off of its course. And one commentator with an expertise in sailing was able to estimate just how much off course in a period of about 24 hours they could have drifted about 36 miles. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last year or so, we've been going through this kind of sort of a metaphorical storm. We've been going through difficulties together. Don't let yourselves or your house church members drift away off course. We're going through a prolonged season of storm right now. Uh, the commentator, he, uh, he writes, the sounding recorded in verse 28. Sounding is where I guess the... Uh, they lower like a weight with the rope into the water to measure how, how deep 
the water is that they're passing through. So the measurement indicated they were passing through a specific point, Cora, on the east coast of Malta on our way to St. Paul's Bay. But the distance from Cauda to the point of Cora is about 476.6 miles, which at the rate as deduced from the information would take exactly 13 days, one hour, and 21 minutes. It's crazy how, how precise they get with the numbers. Based on the information that Luke provides in the text, it's amazing how experienced sailors can trace their exact course with estimated wind speed, direction, and maneuvers of the ship's pilot. Luke's remarkable accuracy lends to a whole other level of uh, credibility of the account. A lot of people that don't believe the Bible, uh, they, 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 don't, they don't believe it because they think that it's, it has inaccuracies. There are some parts that are reported so accurately that there's no room for doubt. They were able to determine that they were still out about 90 feet deep, so the water's about 90 feet deep. If the ship crashed on some of the rocks that were maybe jutting out, the people on board could have drowned while struggling in the night. So in the dark, they lowered the anchors, and as our text says, they were praying for daylight. They're going through, they're struggling through all of this in the dark. As you may well understand, darkness restricts mobility. When it's pitch black, you can't really get much done. If you've ever gone camping and you arrive at your camping site a little bit late, and you're trying to pitch a tent in the dark, that's pretty difficult, right? I mean, you have a little lantern, and you know, you're trying to figure out where the peg goes where. I mean, it's difficult. But if you're out in the sea, that's a whole other uh, spectacularly difficult uh, situation that they're finding themselves in. You cannot do much work in pitch black. So what happens next is understandable. Among the 276 men who were on this ship, some of them are getting antsy, so, so they want to get off. Maybe they were numbered among the prisoners. Maybe some of them await a, de a death sentence. If they all make it on board, they, they get you know, pulled in and they have to meet this death sentence. So they figure they have a better chance going off on their own. For whatever reasons, they cannot stay put on the ship and they're eager to separate from the rest. In verse 30, it reads like this. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So we have a group of people that want to kind of, you know, take off on their own. And Paul takes notice of this, and he warns Julius, the centurion, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers on board cut the ropes so no one can go, get off the ship and go off on their own. Now, I know that this is a pretty specific scenario to draw from a general principle, but hear me out and see if you will agree. This is the first teaching point of the day. Sometimes you have to stay together for the whole to be saved. And when I use the word saved, I'm not speaking of our, of our in, individual spiritual eternal salvation. But we're talking about survival of any kind of unit. The family, for example, or a sports team, the house church, or a military unit, for example, when you're out in, a, in battle. In the case of Paul's warning, this is, a very speci this is a very specific thing, and there's no specific rationale behind it. There's no reason why you need everybody on board on the ship for the whole to survive, but that's what Paul says. 
is simply God's orders to stay together, according to Paul. In one sense, people could object and think, what difference does it make if like a half a dozen people just take off on their own? Why would the rest of them be in jeopardy? It's a reasonable question. But by, the, by this point, the centurion Julius and the rest of the soldiers, they're not taking any chances. They already made the mistake to not listen to Paul initially. So now, because they're going through this life-threatening crisis, they don't sit there arguing against Paul or ask any questions. They just comply right away. They take his word. It usually takes a life-threatening situation for people to follow commands. I don't know why this is. Like when things are calm, when things are all even, even keel, and, and you get, when you get an issue, when you get issued a command, they just people kind of like want to negotiate around it. But when it's a light, when it's a crisis, and the order comes in, we usually answer without any questions. Why? I, I'm not sure. When God puts you together into any, any group, you have to realize that there's a specific role that you were given for the flourishing of the whole. I, I don't know if you, if you noticed this, but through the entire pandemic, after, there was a brief time when I was doing the whole thing, one-man show by myself. But then after some time passed, I asked the, the praise team, the worship team to come together. And I got to tell you, I mean, this, the, the difference is huge. It's between heaven and earth, really right? Everybody that's brought together into a group, we're all placed there for, for a particular function. Even if you don't think that you contribute, your mere presence makes a big difference. Right now, because Chris has been showing up every, every Sunday, I hand the mic and have him do the responsive reading. But even if you did not, even if you didn't do any of that, just you being here, huge, huge difference. And also, when you're on, on Zoom, Man, if you have your face showing, man, it, it, to the preacher, it makes a huge difference, right? I'll give you a, a couple of examples why it matters to stay together. Like in a marriage, this is pretty obvious. If one person is not willing to work on the marriage, the couple cannot be sustained. Both people have to be willing to stay together and work on, him, on himself and work on herself through each other. That's what marriage is. If one person doesn't stay put, that marriage cannot survive. That's a very basic family unit stuff. Another example. I remember one time when I was assigned for a couple of weeks to preach at dawn service while I was in Arizona. We used to have the dawn service that we do like right now. But uh, sometimes when the senior pastor was gone, I would take over and then, you know, I would do the preaching. And there was a time, it was in the summer, only one person showed up. It was a kwansanim, like an elder, like an older lady. And uh, if that person had not shown up, it would have been very hard for me to preach out into the empty sanctuary in the middle of the when, in the, when it's not even light out, right? It would have been very difficult. When God puts to us together in a, into a group like a house church or even a larger congregation like this one, each person plays a part in both the survival and the desirable flourishing of the whole. Everybody counts. Every person counts. God wants to teach us the principle of group dynamics by showing us what it means to be a body. That's how the church works. If a member hurts, if one member hurts, the whole group goes to the pain together with that member. If you smash your pinky finger while you're like, you know, hanging a picture frame, is it only your pinky finger that hurts? 
No, you can't isolate the pain to just the pinky finger. Your whole body is in agony because of that pinky. When you hear that one person in the body is not doing well on his or her faith, that is something that causes deep trouble and discomfort in a pastor. It troubles me to hear that one person is not doing well. But when the storm gets rough, when COVID-19 places us on quarantine and isolation, don't drift away, going off on your own, doing your own things. We will be meeting this uh, coming Friday after uh, almost a whole year of being uh, apart. We haven't really had the house church gather together to eat together. We haven't been able to do that except for a few occasions when we had like a couple of you guys over uh, at our place. And while we're undergoing this, you may have to ask, you may have to ask this, what am I getting used to? What am I allowing myself to get used to while not attending the service in person? You know, even when we do the service through Zoom, when we don't bother to turn on the cameras, what, why, since when do we hide from each other and not show each other our faces? So this is not a hard and fast rule. There are certainly exceptions to this, what I'm, what I'm sharing, but I do want you to consider the spirit of the text. I can see what God wants to emphasize here, and I have certainly observed it with my own eyes in life through experience, is that sometimes you have to stay together for the whole to be saved. For the survival of the whole, you have to stay together. Now, what Paul just made the soldiers do to cut the ropes of the lifeboats he just made him a very unpopular person with that group that we're about to abandon ship. But to the leader, Paul is, is the leader of that boat. The welfare of the whole is more important. And let's not forget who we're talking about here. Paul was never, he never ran for any popularity contest. He didn't care if they threw stones at him. He was still preaching the word of God that was enormously unpopular among the Jews that were listening to him, right? So, what, does, what Paul does next is symbolic of the actual spiritual salvation within the church, specifically when we're going through a difficult time. Paul takes charge and diverts their attention to a very urgent necessity that they may have, that they may have gone neglected. Because for 14 days they're like battling against a storm. What did they forget to do? They forgot to eat food. Have you ever been in such kind of trouble where you couldn't eat for 14 days? And it's not like because you're doing a spiritual fast. You just couldn't eat because you were like, you know. I mean, I couldn't imagine me sitting there on a boat eating food while it's like, while it's doing this. Like, you know, it's threatening to sink and to capsize, right? I mean, I was on one boat ride from, when was it? From in Italy? It was like a ferry ride. It was like a two maybe like a 90 minute ride I got so sick and I usually never get sick because I have kind of an iron stomach I can't imagine what it would be like to be tossed, tossed and turned by the waves and uh, even though you have the food available you can't, you can't eat so Paul says for the last 14 days you have been in constant suspense and you have gone without food you haven't eaten anything now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. I want you to notice here, what Paul is giving is not just a reminder for a biological function, such as taking in food. He's giving a reassurance that takes its source 
from divine origin. He was the person on the boat that received the message from the angels that says, not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. He relays that message. He gives them spiritual comfort before allowing them to take in some food. Because have you guys ever tried to eat some food when you're really upset? In Korean, we have the expression, right? Cheso. Like, like you got into a big fight with your parents or so, about something and you're trying to eat food and you can't digest the food. You get sick and then you throw it back up or whatever, right? I mean, that happens. Now, this is a bold statement. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head because from many depictions of Paul, we see that he was balding. He, had, <laughs> he himself had not you know, been able to spare that, that uh, predicament, but... What he does next is reminiscent of none other than Jesus Christ. Every time we do communion service, I read from this part, from Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul takes some of the bread and gives thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and he began to eat. During in the middle of a storm, in that ship that's about to capsize, he's having communion in front of 276 men. And they eat of it. So the second point of today's message, which may be obvious to some and maybe not too obvious to others, sometimes spiritual encouragement precedes physical sustenance. You guys ever wonder why there is an exercise or discipline of fasting? I don't know if you've ever done a fasting for like 24 hours or maybe like for three days. There are many people that I find, I thought that it was impossible to fast for 40 days. When I, when I first came to the Bible and I read about how Jesus did 40 days and 40 nights fast, I go, get out of here, that's impossible. This has to be a lie, right? But then I hear other normal, ordinary people, maybe not ordinary people, doing like one week fast, two week, 14 day fast. These people were not even fasting. 14 days, they could not eat. <laughs> they were in suspense. I've seen, I've known pastors that have done more, on more than once 40-day fast. I go, that's incredible. Wow. There are times, brothers and sisters, when you go through a literal storm, like the ones that we see in our text, or a kind of storm of a whole different dimension, where you feel like, when you, you know, have you ever heard that here? Have you ever heard that saying where, when it rains, it pours. Like, it's not just one thing. Like, you know, one person in the family gets sick, and then the person gets, loses a job, and then you get a flat tire. I mean, it's just all together crashing in at once. When we have anxieties and fears, they, they have us wake up in the, in, in the middle of the night at random times. Or, or when, we, when we have fights that happen between parents, or between parents and children having like this, you know, god-awful fight. When we have some people who have secret addictions that never allow them to enter into the prolonged period of God's shalom. And this is something that we all go through. We're going through it right now as we approach almost one whole year of this pandemic. In a couple of months, it will be one year, right? It's incredible. I can't believe that it lasted this long. When it, was, when it first, at the onset, I didn't think it was going to last this long. But we carry on in our biological functions. Even though we have the quarantine, we still go to the market in spite of the risk involved, right? A lot of, because of the legal mandate, we can't gather. The congregation has been outlawed you know, for the sake of 
minimizing the potential spread, but we still go. I still make trips to Costco like once a week to buy chicken and eggs, right? I fill up my gas tank once every two weeks. I come to church every day, and I notice everybody else is doing the same thing. We talk about this pandemic and the quarantine, but everybody is hustling and bustling in their activities like there is no quarantine at all. It's really hard to really observe and see the quarantine. I remember during summer last year, I was riding a bike on the beach. I was doing my regular exercise once a week, and uh, I do like a long distance ride. And I see a bunch of kids taking lifeguard training camp lessons out in Huntington Beach. There were like a bunch of people, the kids with like, you know, their seats assigned. And uh, there were people hanging out, all hanging out in Huntington Beach, sunbathing without any masks. So at one level, uh, with the media, we have the alertness on the very high and then we have the public responding, you know, uh, it would mark a difference, right? The devastating effect that I notice is of a decline that is spiritual in nature. While I see people rising up to the occasion, sometimes, you know, your light shines much brighter when it's dark, right? Your faith actually shining brighter in the darkness. A good majority of the people responding in fear, anxiety, and confusion. In our text, the men in the ship had not been able to even notice that they had, not, they had been famished, right? It took the spiritual direction of Paul to be able to find that parenthesis in time in the middle of the threat of crashing and sinking that they were able to actually break bread and give thanks. It was a pretty big ship. There were many men. Luke gives us a precise number, 276. That's more men than our whole church at Miracle Land Baptist Church right now, right? Can you picture these men taking a pause and breaking bread with each other and eating to gather up strength? It's a beautiful picture of grace in the middle of a life-threatening crisis. It is grace under fire. Going through something like the coronavirus pandemic, when the, when the church is able to gather together to take in spiritual food, to take in the message of God for this whole one, one more week ahead of us, when I see the KSC meeting together, when I see the ESC gathering together, that is spiritual sustenance that we take before we take the physical activity that is coming ahead of us through, throughout the week. It takes importance, brothers and sisters. We don't, we don't take it lightly. I pray that every one of us will be able to capture the importance of our spirituality as it relates to our physicality. Some of you may fail to see the connection between the two, but when you start out your week, the quality of your worship on a Sunday, it will determine the course of your week. It will set the tone of that week, the way you come on Sunday. Like when you have your heart set and you want to really receive the Word of God with expectancy. I want to hear what God has to tell me for this week. I want to see what kind of spiritual encouragement that I can receive for this week. And when you, when you caught it, because the pastor, because I'm supposed to be the quarterback, right? I passed it to the wide receiver, and you received it, and you caught it, and you run with it, that whole week will be entirely different than when you just sat there, did not pay attention, and you kept, when you lost it. When you let it fall to the floor, when you fumbled, right? 
Uh, I've been getting used to uh, this, this year, uh, I've been getting up at like around 5 every morning to attend the dawn service with the KSC on Zoom. I've never thought that this could be even thought up. Like one of the first things that went with the coronavirus was the early morning dawn service. So we're doing this with the new senior pastor every day. And let me tell you, that sets for me the tone for the entire day. It was hard at first, getting up early, you know, when my body was getting used to getting up like a few hours later. But getting up at 5, I, know, I understand that David has to get up at 4, 4.30 to make it to work. But when you get used to that, and when that first hour is given to the Lord, the rest of the day is remarkably different. It, it, it all falls into order in a beautiful way. Even when you do, I do get a little tired earlier in the night because I got up early. But it's a good kind of tired. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's not this nasty tired, but it's the good kind of tired. Like the kind of tired that where your body is weary. So when you, you know that when you just go and you lie down in your bed, you're just going to fall asleep in peace like a baby. And uh, even, because, even though you like a, uh, because you gave your first hour up, you know, that early, you may have some other busynesses that come your way. It's the good kind of busy. It's not this frantic, nervous busyness. As you can see, even in a storm, on a ship about to crash, under Paul's leadership, the men are able to eat to their full capacity, which is because, I mean, you know, they, they were able to actually eat their fill and to, able, to be able to throw the rest of the food into the sea. I mean, just thinking about it, reading about it makes me sick to my stomach because they've been like, They've been doing this in the ship for a long time, and I'm I'm wondering how are they even able to take in the food? Their body must have really needed it, right? So again, this is not a hard and fast rule, but it does apply more often than not. Spiritual encouragement precedes physical sustenance. You have to be spiritually in the right condition before you are even able to keep your food down. And I'm sure that many of you can relate. Now, after they eat, they're able to throw the food into the sea and for certain that they, uh, they have to run the ship aground. And this is not a small loss. If a cargo ship, first of all, the cargo on board has to be jettisoned. They have to like throw it, throw it away because they want to reduce the weight of the ship. And it's understandable. But to crash land the ship, we're talking about a, a move that they have to make when there's absolutely no other option. I was doing a little research for this illustration, but a 40-foot yacht today is estimated to be around $8.4 million by sales data, by checking the sales data. And that can only carry about 15 people safely. A 40-foot yacht. In our story, we're talking about a cargo ship that carried 276 men, passengers. It's about a tenth of the capacity of the Queen Mary or the Titanic. Titanic was able to carry about 2,000 plus passengers and about 1,000 crew members, right? Which costs, if you do the calculation due to inflation, it's between 200 to 500 million dollars, these ships. So if you were to cut it by 10th, right, about 10%, we're talking about a vessel that would have cost about 30 million dollars today. It has to be destroyed. Why? Because if you don't intentionally drive it to the shallower area on, to crash land, it could be crushed by surrounding rocks, threatening to drown the men at sea. You can have casualties, human lives being lost if you don't run the ship aground. 
which is, you know, it's a useful reminder for somebody like myself. Um, me, I have a particular weakness. I have a peculiar attachment to material possessions. I don't know if you like that. How many of you kind of like a pack rat? You like to hoard things. How many of you have like toys that you had since you were a little kid? Or like a blanket or something that you can't let go? There are people like that, right? Just the other day I saw a large projector. I was showing Priscilla the other day. It's a big projector that was uh, just haphazardly discarded over there by the uh, container bin. And uh, we don't even use projectors anymore. As you can see, we have, you know, LCD panel, big ones, right? But I remember in many short-term mission outings, these projectors came in very handy because we're showing the Jesus film to the people down in Mexico or other places. So there's an element of sentimentality. I, I, I look at this in machine and I go, oh, man, you know, good memories of showing Jesus films to the people, right? It invokes a sentimentality when I look at the object. So naturally, I try plugging it in to see if it works, and it doesn't power on. So I crack it open with a screwdriver, and after fiddling with the one hour one day and another hour another day, I plug it in, and voila, I power it on, it turns on. Eureka! And then I get a picture. I connect it to my laptop, and I actually get a picture, partial picture, not even a full picture. I go online and I do a little research, and it turns out that it cost $9,000 back in 1999, this thing, you know, and uh, to replace its lamp. It takes two lamps. One lamp costs $750. So, so just for one lamp for this thing, it, take, it costs as much as an average new LED projector that you can buy today. We're living in a culture steeped deep into consumerism. You guys know the phones that you buy? right now, it's going to be obsolete in very few years. That's why you have to keep updating it. It's going to keep, you know, keep your, your, your cash flow, your expenditure up on the rise, right? And um, the dollar amount that has gone into something can affect our judgment regarding its value. The ship that I just described for you, the cargo ship, about $30 million. But the question is, how much is one life on that boat worth? Is it worth more than $30 million? How much value on the usefulness of the cargo ship when in comparison to just one life among the 276 people on board? Is the life of just one person something that can be traded for $30 million, $300 million? What kind of price would you put on a human life? The problem is that in the world, too many people place a value far less than that. There are slave traffickers that sell human persons not even for a fraction of a fraction of that. There are assassins, there are kill, hired killers who are willing to kill human lives for far less. We don't even have to go that far. We don't have to get that creative with our illustrations. Lives of pre-born babies are aborted for so much less. It's not even a dollar value. It's for personal convenience that babies are aborted, which leads us to the third point of our message today. Sometimes we do take a physical loss in order to save spiritual lives. In Matthew, Jesus says emphatically that it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Have you guys heard this before? Nod your heads if you've heard this before. You've heard it, right? If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. And uh, when we read this, we realize... 
Jesus is using hyperbole. You guys know what hyperbole means? It's an exaggeration used for rhetorical effect. He wants to wake, kind of shake us with the, with the, you know, with the exaggeration to, to, to emphasize the seriousness of the matter. And a lot of people just, you know, we kind of dismiss it at that. We go, oh, well, he's just exaggerating. But let me tell you, let me share with you what it looks like to cut off a part of yourself to survive. It was made abundantly clear by an incident not too long ago. I don't know if you have actually seen the movie or read the book on this. About 17 years ago, there was a man by the name of Aaron Ralston who was doing a solo rock climb down in Utah. And as he was descending from the rock, he dislodged a boulder and his right wrist got pinned right there along the canyon wall and the boulder. And according to Wikipedia, which I accessed just yesterday, he was trapped there for five days. No food, no water. So he had to make an executive decision at that point. What do I do? Do I just get pinned here and die? You know what he did? He had to actually amputate. That's right. He had to cut off his own arm with a dull pocket knife to make his way through the rest of the canyon. After he cut it off, he was able to make his way rest of the canyon, repelling down a 64-foot drop and hike seven miles into safety. This was actually made into a movie. It's called 127 Hours in a memoir. He wrote a memoir about this, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Beautiful title, right? What a way for God to make this principle unforgettably graphic. When we are on a spiritual journey and we think that we can haul along everything from our past, all our material possessions, we're, we're badly mistaken. We're badly mistaken. In everything you try to maintain, in veer, if, if everything you try to maintain is veering your life away from, from, a life, from way of faith into salvation, then you have to have the wisdom to lighten the cargo and to find a safe harbor to land in. There are people in the faith who are actually trying to serve two masters while often drifting away from their faith or finding themselves shipwrecked altogether in their faith. We're trying, to, we're trying to both serve two masters, and it, it, it can't do that. It's not a sustainable thing. You have to let go of one or the other. That is what Jesus says. You, no one can serve two masters. One, we either hate the one and love the other, or vice versa. Conversely, there are many people who streamline their lives, simplifying things to make themselves more available to the Lord. You could have like I had a CEO who had a multi-million dollar business and it was going really well, but something wasn't sitting well in his conscience. He started to not be able to like really sleep well at night and he was uncomfortable. He was tossing and turning and he realized he, there was a voice, a faint voice that he heard through his conscience, God saying, don't you think it's time to let that thing go now? So surely enough, he makes uh, changes and adjustments in his life. Maybe a uh, hands the company over to a trusted associate, someone that he trusts, and then he embarks on, a, on an entirely different mission for God. We hear stories like this all the time. We hear these stories, and uh, they, they happen for a reason. God wants to show us that we can't haul it all with us to where we're going. In the case of our text, what we're seeing is, unlike... Um, how in Jonah's story, the storm appears to come as a result of Jonah's disobedience. This storm comes even in Paul's full obedience to God. 
They're both for a display of God's mercy and His power. But in this story, it is through Paul that everybody else is being delivered to safety. I, I hope that you get to experience that one day in your life where just because you happen to be in the right place at the right time and you happen to be faithful to the Lord, that you were able to, to save the lives of people around you or at least you were able to avert a great disaster because you were listening to God the whole time. In the first two weeks of the, of the year, uh, of 2021, we heard messages about darkness and light. If you can imagine having been on a ship tossing and turning for 14 days with darkness of the clouds during the day and just pitch black at night, I can guarantee you that you are praying for anything to make it stop. I can guarantee if you were on that boat, you'd be like, just, just, Lord, just kill me now. I don't want to go through this anymore, right? In verse 39, we finally see relief. Finally, daylight breaks in. The daylight breaks in. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. And by this point, the ship's crew hoped to land it on the beach, which could salvage it possibly. But in verse 41, we see that it struck a sandbar and it got stuck in the water where the surf, was, surf and the waves were continually pounding the stern, breaking into pieces. So no matter what, the ship was lost cause anyway. They were not able to save the ship. It gets stuck. It gets shattered into pieces. But just like God promised, even though the ship is torn apart, the people are not harmed. Just as the, as the angel of God had told Paul, just as Paul had assured the people aboard. Had they insisted on staying on the ship, or had God not led them towards the land, surely there would have been some serious casualties. In the text, we see that we see the uh, the principle of principle of this cost and losses taking into effect into spiritual dimensions. So, just to reiterate, our third point is this: sometimes you do take a physical loss in order to save spiritual lives. You do have to cut off one hand so that you could save the rest of the body. Right now, uh, we see something about to happen that is also kind of puzzling. In verse 42, Luke says that soldiers were planning to kill the prisoners to prevent any from getting away. Now, if you remember, just a few chapters back, uh, was it Peter? Yeah, I think it was Peter. Yeah, also Paul. Um, when they were pr imprisoned, and then God opens the, the prison doors and they escape. Like, they thought, the, the guard thought that they were, they were surely had escaped escape so he was about to, this is with Paul he was about to kill himself with the sword and then Paul has to tell him don't harm yourself we're all in here right if the if for a soldier that the, if the for the soldier that is guarding the prisoners if the prisoners do escape that responsibility is on them so instead of taking that kind of dishonor or loss or the the liability of being found as not being able to fulfill their duty they figure let's just kill them you know, before they even land on the, on the ship, even though they've gone through this together, the soldiers are thinking soldier mentality. Let's just kill the prisoners. But, I mean, it's a barbaric recourse, but now from among the prisoners, guess who was counted as a, one of the prisoners? It's Paul. None other than our very apostle Paul. This centurion who is in, in charge of the soldiers 
who's actually identified earlier as, with, by name, Julius. Julius, he had taken a liking to Paul. He liked Paul. He saw that there was something special about Paul. Paul was giving them now, you know, spiritual direction into the safety of the, of the whole people. And Luke says that he specifically wanted to spare Paul and therefore kept the soldiers from carrying out their plan on killing all the prisoners. So in effect, the prisoners were all saved from possible death by sword from the Roman soldiers right then and, right then and there on the ship before, taking foot a step, uh, before ever stepping foot on land. And who should they be thanking? For sure, they should be thanking God. But it was for the sake of Paul that they were spared. This is how salvation works. It's not because of the merit of any of the soldiers there or the prisoners that that they were saved. It was because of one person that was wearing the mercies of God who had the grace of him that the whole ship was saved. Imagine if you were one of those agents in the future of our lives, in this uncertainty that we face. In the decades that come, we have no idea how this country is going to turn. We don't know. There's uncertainties of vast magnitude. How do you know that you wouldn't be someone like Paul? That because of your faithfulness and the grace that you are wearing, that you could perhaps spare as many as 276 men or people from perishing. This is our final takeaway. Uh, If you will go, David, to the final point. And while all the prior points started with this disclaimer, sometimes, sometimes, the following is true without exception. If you are saved by God, it is so that you'll bless other people. This is one of the deficiencies of North American Christianity. Somewhere along the line, a lie was being preached that salvation alone in itself is for for your ends. That the whole, whole, the whole quest is for your salvation and your salvation only. If it ends with my salvation, then what else is there to do? It's not. It, that's not where it ends. We were saved for a specific purpose. If I was saved, it's so that I could be used as someone who can be saved for others to be saved as well. Right? If you are, remember this, if you are saved by God, if you really are saved by God, it is so that you will bless and also lead others on to salvation. So this is the fourth point. Most definitely, not sometimes, God saves you to be a blessing to others on to salvation. And this is, this is where I, you know, it's kind of iffy for some people. Some people might be like, I don't know, is that, is that true? You know, is that, I didn't know that our salvation was like conditional or something. You know, I'm not saying that it's conditional. Your salvation is not conditional. God, I mean, the only condition is that you believe that Jesus died for you and that by no merit alone other than, than that of Jesus is by which you were saved. But if you were saved, in fact, to what ends? Why were you saved? You have to ask that question. Because if you don't, that's it. You're saved, so you know, we just live the rest of your life as you please and you're all good. We're all meet in heaven, right? No. I don't know if that's, a, if that's the correct way of reading the Bible or living our lives. I want you to ask yourselves this question. I mean, seriously. If you do not rejoice in others being saved through your own labor of love, this means that you have to have a labor of love. You're doing something that people look at you and go, geez, why do you do that? Why do you have to go to that extent? And you're doing all these things, and, and, and when, you, when you do rejoice in that, well, yeah, then that's because you're saved. But if you do not, 
if you do not rejoice when others get a true assurance of their standing with God because of you, then you have to seriously question whether you have the faith or not. Whether you are a believer or not, you have to question that. Because the greatest thing, greatest joy a Christian can share together is the conversion of another person. Is another soul being saved. When one more soul gets saved because of our efforts, because of what's going on in here, there's a huge feast that goes up in heaven. And guess who's celebrating together? All of us down here. We're just down here right now, but in the existence where it's eternal, where it's not, you know, there's no gradation of, of time, time being measured like the way we're measuring it, past, present, and future. When, you, when you're celebrating in eternity, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a place or state where, where it's not constrained by, by, by time or space, right? When one person comes to salvation, that is an eternal rejoicing that we partake in. Man, I can't, I can't wait till we experience that. You know how when it rains, it pours? Like bad news? Like the good news. One person being saved and another person being saved and having that testimony, just not ceasing in, in your gatherings, in your house churches. Every Sunday, new faces coming and hearing that, yeah, the Lord became all of a sudden very real to me and I know I'm saved. It is kind of a litmus test uh, on your own standing with God. Are, are, you, are you saved? Are you counted in among His chosen ones? You can't answer this all by yourselves. Sometimes in the North American Christianity, we're conditioned to, to say this mantra, even though you have all these doubts because you're not living up to it, right? You're not living up to the salvation that you received. You just kind of say it. Well, I was saved on this day. I have a certificate of my baptism. I made, my, I made a decision to invite Jesus into my life. And then we think that we're all in the clear. But mm, I don't know. If your heart is after what God's heart is after, then we can be sure. Then we can be sure. God reveals your standing with Him through others to confirm this over a long period of time where you can, they can vouch for your consistency and your commitment. Let's say that you have a brother or sister. We have somebody that's just hopping church from one to another, to another, to another. How will you know? How will you know if you stood the test of time for other people to see your sincerity and your eagerness? It is because of you. Is it, because, is, it, is it because of you that others can get a glimpse of, into God's salvation? Do other people that, that maybe not, don't have the faith, they look, will they look at you and go, wow, that's what a saved life, saved life, saved life looks like. I want, I want me some of that. Are you, are, you being a, a, are you ushering people in that way? Or do you find yourself hindering the work of God? Do you find yourself hindering the work of God? That happens too in the church. Salvation of our souls is, is primarily one that frees you from the hell where you are at the center of your world. When you are at the center of your world and, and you want to manipulate everything else into your will, that is hell. That is not peace. And sal conversely, salvation of our souls is into the heaven where Jesus in His rightful throne of our heart, our lives as our King. Any family where Jesus is the Lord of that family, there's peace and joy and laughter in that family. In any kind of institution, when you have a despot, an authoritarian, a totalitarian 
trying to call the shots when that person is not Jesus, that's a very, uh, uh, that's a very unfortunate, unfortunate existence. What we read in the message today is a glimpse into the dramatic portrayal of just that, a group of people being saved because of Paul, just in the same way we are saved because of Jesus. But our salvation is not where it ends. Our role as the saved people of God, His church, is to play the part that Paul took to bless the people around us in the middle of a storm. We were saved, each of us, to be a link in the chain that is connected to the anchor that is Christ. The whole world could be shaken, you know. One day, Satan will be given that. You know, you know that how Job was allowed, allowed to be tested by, by Satan, you know. Let's imagine God says, yeah, go ahead. And then Satan is allowed to just shake the world, just shake the world, where you can't tell what's top, what's bottom, what's left, what's right. We'll be the ones that will be anchored to Jesus as the truth and each of us being playing that chain. Let there be no weak links in our chain is what I'm saying. I pray that each of the links in our chain be strong, that it will withstand the tests that may be coming in our way, that each of us would fulfill the reason that we are saved, not merely to take salvation of Christ to be an end for ourselves, but to become the means by which others too can be saved. Amen? Hallelujah. I pray that each and every one of you, every one of us, would encounter the joy of being the agent, the very agent of God's grace through a storm where many people's eyes will be opened through your presence to the reality of God. May people that don't, know, don't even think about God be able to fathom, imagine, and seek God because of you. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for uh, this message today. We thank you for the text that's so dramatic and is uh, illustrating to what we may be going through in the interior landscape of our lives. Sometimes we go through uh, storms in life. Sometimes we have a, a uh, lightning and thunder in our hearts. There are injustices that we see uh, through the media. Lord, we see uh, disorder, things that, that threaten the security of this nation. There are a lot of things, Lord, that, that, that cause anxiety. But Lord, uh, we are anchored to your truth, and we are able to withstand any kind of storm. Uh, as it were, Lord, we are each willing to go through your fire if we be refined and come out at the other end as refined gold that you will prize. Lord, we ask that you would lift us up out of anxiety and confusion and fear and that you would, Lord, empower us with your courage and uh, a desire to get, to get closer to you and to, Lord, uh, to welcome and receive each other. Lord, we have an event that we're looking forward to this coming Friday and uh, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but when, you, when your spirit when your spirit's there and when your spirit shows up, we know that it will be an occasion that nobody will want to miss. So bless and anoint that time with us. And may we, Lord, grow in our fellowship into the, the chapter that you're opening in the future of MBC in, cha uh, in year 20, 2021, the 21st year of the 21st century. Lord, bless this group, Lord, with your mighty presence. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Now this time of a time of praise and response, after which we'll have a time of offering.